0: I'm Kamaran Peter of the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change. I'm also in the Alan Gray Center for Values-Based Leadership at the Graduate School of Business, the University of Cape Town. You're listening to The Pulse. Today, I'm sitting here with two distinguished guests. Heather Robertson is the editor of the Daily Maverick 168, the print version. She's also the former editor of the Herald and the Weekend Post. She was deputy editor at the Sunday Times and Elle magazine as well. Also with us is Herman Wasserman, who is Professor of Media Studies at the University of Cape Town. Both our guests have had illustrious careers and possess a deep understanding of the media. And we're together today to discuss the role of the media and social media during periods of intense civil protest and unrest. So first, you know, just a more general question for the benefit of our listeners, Um, with respect to the... Devastating scale of unrest that we've seen unfold in KwaZulu-Natal. Why is this happening? Um, who benefits and, and who will lose out because of what's transpiring right now? And in particular, to what extent does this represent support for Jacob Zuma? And to what extent is this a product of the deep inequality and, and grinding poverty that's been exacerbated under COVID-19 conditions? Kevin,
1: look, I think the riots and the looting and the violence are definitely symptomatic of, of of the social conditions that we have, of the gross inequality in South Africa. And I've been writing about this for quite a while now. That unless that is addressed, this is a powder keg that is going to explode. And but make no mistake, the radical economic transformation faction and Jacob Zuma's supporters. Have actually um, you know are involved and and and, and have m- manipulated and taken advantage and pretty opportunistically of the deep inequalities um, that we have and um so so yes the 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 match was lit by by the by the, by the by the people who were hanging outside the Kandler compound mansion. Um, and then, and 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 you know, they did, did very little on the night when Zuma was was actually, you know, handed himself in at, at escort correctional services. But they had planned, and they and, and 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 the violence and started. You know, it was that it was like little fires all over the place on on, on Friday night, um, and 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 yes, fanned a lot by um, by by social media and. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so so the, I think the cause is it's it's both. I don't I don't think it's only support of 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 the Jacob Zuma and the Free Jacob Zuma movement. I do think that it's um, um that it it actually it's it, it it massively increased and in spread because of poverty hunger. Um, and and there's a and and the levels of unemployment. I mean, we have, I think, a lot of lumpen proletariat out there. I mean, it's very interesting that it was liquor stores that were, that, you know, that we and and the last two two weeks we've had um, liquor not being sold because of level four of lockdown. I think there's a lot of frustration um, because of lockdown. Um, people not being able to to, to move around. Um, I mean people just full of this pandemic and 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 been frustrated about it. i mean people have lost their jobs due to the pandemic. people mm. um, have lost lives due to the pandemic. People have been very ill due to the pandemic so so I think it's a conflation of a whole lot of different factors that were lit by, um by by, by by the people standing outside you know at that at, at, at in Cunliffe and 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 and, and, it, and it's just blown up
0: it 's like the perfect. Firestorm, all the fuel was there. And all it took was, you know, a little bit of, not well, a little bit, <laughs> I think quite a bit of coordinated. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I think there's a massive oh, coordination. Yes. Speaking to people on the ground, there does seem to be a it does to be a coordinated response. Um, and, uh, you know, understand that, I mean, that Jacob Zuma was in charge of this apparatus, um, not just for the nine years that he was president, but, it, I mean, remember he had a massive, um, um, I mean, he was part of the negotiations, uh, the peace negotiations in Pasadena in, in, in the early days, in the 90s. I mean, who was he negotiating with? Um, yeah, I mean, like he was negotiating with warlords. I mean, how did he pacify the warlords? Did the warlords support him in the end? Because, I mean, there was a massive shift between the IFP and the ANC when Jacob Zuma came into power. I mean, you know, so so those, you know, who who knows, but there's, it's a very complex situation. And I think it's been happening longer than the 10 years that Jacob Zuma was, was president. Um, and, you know, we, I mean, those of us who grew up in KwaZulu-Natal have experienced this violence before. Um, and mm. then, we, we, uh, and before it, it, it was it, it was the ANC, the UDF versus the IFP, but then also a were thrown in. I mean, um, and, and and so, how much of that has actually, you know, been lying dormant or has been activated and and has been rekindled now? It's it, you know, you know, it's very it's complex. But uh, what wasn't there was social media. I mean, that's one element yeah. that wasn't there. Has as, as been social media and 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 how that spreads disinformation. I mean, I've been appalled at at, at the WhatsApp messages. Um, we must go and burn down every single uh, minister's house. Uh, we must kill Sil Ramaphosa in his house. We know where he lives. I mean, spread. Across. I mean, like the, this. This is a WhatsApp at a, in a, a, a in isiZulu in a Yovul group. Okay, that, that mm-hmm. I'm talking about. I mean, unable to identify who the person is, but it's like, it's, it's incendiary um, that it's happening. And it's, and, and, it's, and it's all over the place and in all different platforms.
0: Yeah, I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal in the 80s, so I lived through the two states of emergency. And, um, you know, just drawing on my own personal experience, what's happening now was kind of what the nightmare <laughs> the nightmare scenario would be in KZN. And, you know, it's not good to draw out all ghosts, but I think what you're saying is really speaks to the heart of the issue, which goes back quite a long way. Uh, even the IFP only really came into Kadessa negotiations at a very late stage. They had to be convinced. <laughs> there was all this talk of secession. So... Uh, even though it might be denied, I think there's also elements of sort of Zulu ethno-nationalism playing some role here. Uh, Herman, I know it's not your um, stock in trade, but do you have anything to add to this? Well, I think
2: um, just to add on to what has already said, I think the temptation in, in moments like these is to um, try and find some sort of causal relationship between what we see on the ground and, and, and you know, to connect events. Um, and I think one has to guard against a sort of reductionist view of this. And I think what I appreciate from both your views is that you both take it not only back to the sort of longer history of what's going on in, in KwaZulu-Natal now and the 80s and so on, the so long-standing um, tensions, polarizations in, in that province, but also the broader issues of um this is certainly a part cake that was lit by um, the imprisonment of of Jacob Zuma and his supporters but that there are also many other factors at play there are social and political and economic factors and I think it's that the challenge here is to try and unpack um you know how these things relate and, and and avoid I think a simplistic view of this So what we see here I think is is certainly, um, a, a political moment, and it is also something that is maybe um, a, a useful moment for, for certain political players and political actors, um, but it is certainly also something uh, a more deeper and, and, and longer, more complex. And, and again i think also when we even when we talk about something like looting or rioting or unrest and we maybe we should get to some of these terms you know in due course of this conversation and, and also how the media are using these these terms but i think when we look at this there's also the the, the danger that one homogenizes um, what is happening i mean there are different types of of protest uh, uh, different types of criminality different types of looting different types of um behavior i think and and then we have to try and and disaggregate these um so yeah i think it's 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 quite a complex situation and it's a very demanding one i think especially for the media to to get to grips with and to try and portray and i think already we are seeing some of the the problematic aspects of whenever there's a conflict whenever there's um you know something that is a, a crisis like this uh tends to to lead to certain types of reporting that that might be more harmful than than uh, than good. And and so maybe we can get into some of that as well in due course.
0: Yeah, now that you raise it, you know, um, I was struck by some of the language on ENCA that was being used throughout the last few days. You know, uh, pronouncing judgment in essence, you know, not incorrectly calling this criminality. (laughs) But when the media uses that kind of language, it's definitely shaping the conversation in a particular way. Um, And, you know, particularly referencing, this is not protest, this is criminality. Um, And, you know, also just speaking to the broader history of this on a more South African scale, is that service delivery protests what we, there's a wide range of different reasons for these protests. We've lumped them under this term service delivery protest. But to some sources, you know, in 2004, we only had like 14 major service delivery protests, ones that went violent. They're different sources for this, by the way, you know, so it's hard to pin it down. But from this particular source, it went from about 14 major in 2004 to peaking at over 100 in 2009. Just after the financial collapse, Jacob Zuma comes to power, and then around 2013 to 2014, it actually started peaking around 400 per year, and I was monitoring this all along, um, and became deeply concerned about, uh, particularly the youth bulge, who were uh, being raised in this culture of protest, which is. The only way they could, often those communities had legitimately worked with, on the, with local councillors and local government as much as they could and got nowhere. And after two or three years, they would become hutfall <laughs> and just, you know, take over a highway or, you know, set up obstacles and basically render the, it ungovernable. And then a politician would come in. And see to their needs, so it 's not setting a precedent for how you go about doing it so i 've always had this fear that it might spread in the way that it did in natel but never in my wildest nightmares did I imagine i 'd see what i 've been seeing over the last four days i
2: think the the point here is that again that is is important how media frame things and and again. Um, Just at the beginning of this, uh, these events a few days ago, I think the the first framing was that of protest. So, I mean, and I think international media as well often saying this is a protest against Zuma's imprisonment. And immediately that made me feel somewhat uncomfortable just because of the language of or or the history of protest that you've just pointed to. Um, where the, that sort of protest, the social delivery protest is also a reductionist way of looking at it because it's it's not only about giving us some sort of, you know, in a sort of transactional move, giving us social services or, you know, delivering whatever that might be, water or sanitation, all of that important, but pointing to a much larger problem, which is that there are many communities that felt that they weren't being heard, communities that felt that they weren't being um uh, they're not important, they're not in count. And the only way that either the politicians or the media could pay attention to them was by blocking roads and, and burning things, to, to put it bluntly. But that was a much more, I would say, a, um, and I don't want to get into the language of legitimacy or not, but I mean, I think it was a it was a political and a longer political struggle, and there were also some political groupings that have come out of those those um, protests and have been linked to those protests in a way that I think um, one could see them as democratization protests. You know, and we've we've studied this and we've written about this, and and, and it was interesting. I think that a lot of those protests were um to do with the dividends of democracy, people that felt that the, the dividends of democracy weren't paid to them, right? So nothing really has changed. And it also pointed not only to a political failure, but often also a failure on the part of the media, that the media only reported when there are these moments of conflict, these spikes, and it became a strategy, right? So um and, and when we spoke to activists, they would say, well, that's the only way that we can get the media to report on this. And when they do, they only report on this while things are happening. Once uh the protest stops, then they disappear. Um, and and, and I think the so so to come back to this particular set of moments, that I think when I saw the, the, the term protest, um, I think this was for me felt uncomfortable because it it might have the implication that it is similar to those types of protests, which I don't think it is. I think there are um, certainly some resonances, and I think some of what we are seeing um, certainly speaks to a a disgruntlement, a a disillusionment, a frustration and an anger and maybe a lack of ownership of society, a a feeling of marginalization. But it is not, I think, a a political... uh, Protest in the sense that those community protests were as a sort of um outflow of the democratization process. So I think um that has now subsequently been reframed. I think the media now um talk about unrest and, and and similar type of framings. Um and and so it is important to I think that the that we consider also how this is framed and how this is reported. And again, um trying to do the difficult work of making this more complex rather than simplifying it. And I think that is. That is a particular challenge for the media is to try and get to the complexities rather than oversimplifying things.
0: Um, You raise such an interesting point. Um, Hannah Arendt in one of her books uh, quotes John Locke, if uh, if I'm correct, where he speaks about the plight of the poor man. And what he says is, you know, what the real curse of the poor man is, is invisibility. And so it speaks to, you know, that making yourself visible uh, in order to become part of, to, to get some of the dividends of this democracy.
1: There's also interest, there was an interesting piece of research that Carl von Halt did from CSVR, um, the smoke that calls, which speaks to exactly this. Um, like we looked at, at eight cases of community protests um, and xenophobic violence. And it's exactly that, is that the media, goes um when, when there's burning tires and when there's fires but not just that and when the media goes that's when government pays attention um mm. and it, and it's, so we need to look at it in that in that context as well um yeah absolutely. Just, it's, it's you know it's also, it's like smoke it's smoke signals calling you know to actually look at us pay attention to us take our issue seriously and this is the only time we do which is, which is it's, in a way, it's a, it's a failing of a media that has been decimated um, um, for numerous, n- numerous re- reasons. I mean, there are much fewer journalists in newsrooms around, and so um, they can't actually attend to everything. But obviously also a failure of government to, 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 to pay attention to service delivery in, in those areas. So this is the only way of actually of communities communicating whatever their needs or the issues are.
0: Yeah, it's a strategy. Um, so, my next question is you know, the right to protest is, is key to a healthy democracy. And while civil disobedience is often a part of protest, you know, the, the role of violence is heavily contested. And in the media and social media climate of today, simply sharing footage of violence can itself add fuel to the fire. So when we look at the protests unfolding over the past four days, what can we say about the role of media and social media in amplifying the spread of violence, so both the media and social media? And more specifically, to what extent does traditional media amplify the disinformation that appears on social media or, or serve as a source of disinformation itself? Is there a vicious cycle between the two that can amplify the unrest. I know it's a bit of
1: a leading question. Okay, so when we talk about the media, we've got to talk of different kinds of media. Okay, um, I know I would like to think that the media, that that basically um, puts itself and uh, the media that those media organisations who are members of, for example, the South African Press Council or the or the broadcasting complaints commission the, the, the those media that actually um uh, put themselves up for peer review and scrutiny um in general are a little bit more are, are i think a lot more careful about amplifying um falsehoods um and 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 do a lot more fact checking I mean i know in the organ in in the daily mavic we have to do that and um, in other organizations that i've worked for we, we did do that as well um it's and and, and it's very easy um to you know you see, um, for organizations which are looking to increase audience as so as to increase advertising to not be circumspect and and to not um, and to not investigate and verify and fact check um and i'm just going to call a spade a spade um. IL, an independent media, they refused, they, 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 they deserted the press council. They've decided to have their own ombudsman and, um, and, and look what's happened with that, uh, the story of the, of the uh, you know, I mean, an editor working for IL actually wrote a story that went viral globally. And you know, we still haven't seen those babies and, 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 and they're investigating themselves. So, so, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it is a bit of a leading question and it's, it's very, it's very difficult. And, and, it's, and, 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 and what we have to do in the media is to, is to take very deep breaths and, and do not, um, want to go and, you know, Cover every single thing, and do not and do not amplify every single thing that we see on Twitter or on Facebook. But we have to actually check that first. And so, and, and and some, as I said, who we who want to were chasing clicks um, for you know to increase audience size or to or and they 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 would perpetuate the um, the, the falsehoods that are being that, that are that are being amplified on on social media. Um, but I think what does distinguish those of us who do belong to to organizations like the Press Council, and who we'll do abide by the press code, um, it does this thing, we, 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 you know, we are forced to actually, and even when we do, when we make mistakes, we are, we, we are forced to, to, um, to self-correct, to apologize, um, to publish prominently th- 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 those apologies. So, um, and, and I think that's a, that, 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 that is a very valuable mechanism for us, um, and, and, and for it to be totally seeped in the way we actually do our work. Um, on, on, on all levels, particularly in times like this, and to and then the conversations in the newsrooms. I mean, there's a lot of argument and a lot of debate about like, hey, you know, um, yes, they, I mean, and, and you can see it because I mean, we, we we work in remotely, right, because of COVID. Uh, very difficult to actually physically go into into places. Um, our I mean, our port- reporters and photographers are putting themselves at great risk. They have to be covered in PPE. Um, and now in, in, this, in, in situations of violence, you don't have to wear protective gear, but they are going out there and they're getting the photographs and, they, and, they, and, 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 and they're interviewing uh, people involved, but, but often in very, very difficult circumstances. And then so it's up to us that are sitting at the desk to, to ask the hard questions and to verify and to fact check and to counter check, you know. Um, and I think um, online, I really, really take my hat off to Africa check I mean, they've been very fast in, in, um, for example, that um, that uh, Duduzile Zuma um, tweet um, saying that, you know, now she's like saluting all these people protesting over the place and they pointed out that actually, hey ho, that that this didn't actually happen. Now this happened a year ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think um, 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 media, then they are part of the media, like, like Africa Check, are doing a brilliant job to to to. Um, to, to basically counter the false narratives that have been, I mean, spread all over the place by who knows who. I mean, we don't know if they're bots, we don't know if they're real people, we don't, we, you know what I mean? Um, and then the few real journalists who, who, are, who are not bots. Um, it's, a tough, it's a tough job. It's a very tough job that we have working in a pandemic and working in, 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 in these kinds of circumstances. So we try—is what I'm trying to say—is those of us in the media that do be that 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 uh, that, that do subscribe to the values of the press code and do belong to the press councils, the broadcast and do abide by those things. We try damn hard to get it right, and when we get it wrong, we you know we we, we self-correct and apologise, and that's very important.
0: Yeah, I mean I can imagine what a difficult job it is. I just watched a little YouTube interview with William Byrd, and. He was saying, you know, in the era of mobile phones, uh, journalists can't be first on the scene everywhere. <laughs> so they take on a different role of, of actually having to vet the kind of yeah. footage that's we coming. We don't break and- the
1: news. We have to verify the news. We have to. We have to go in deeper. We can't. We, I mean, there is. I mean, especially when there's a crisis like this, and I mean, it's it happens everywhere. There's a temptation to like, oh no, we've got to actually go and do this and do this first and be, the, and and we've got to constantly caution and say, hold on, this is not our role anymore. All the stuff is flying all over the place by, by. I call them citizen journalists, but ordinary members of the public with their cell phones who are like sharing stuff all over the place. We have got to step back and we've got to actually put, uh, uh, try and understand it, speak to experts, try and join the dots, try and explain what's behind what's happening because we do not break news anymore. However, I mean, I know News24 claims to break news first, but actually it's the citizens who are breaking news. It's cell phones and smartphones have have, have, have put that breaking news role um, I know the history maker. I said we, um, the, the first, the um, the what the, the first record of history. It's actually it's actually ordinary people. And journalists can't be everywhere because, as I said, we've been decimated. What we can do is actually use the tools that we've been using that we've learned to try and distill, analyze, explain, interrogate, investigate. That's what we can do.
2: So if I can come in there. I think the, the 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 what what Heather what you've been referring to now in terms of the the curatorial job of, of journalists, uh, I think that has become, that's certainly an added challenge, I think, that we see in, on social media. And that's the, and, and to that, the, the whole um, disinformation and fact-checking, and it's a whole new ball game, I think, for journalists. But I think there is also a longer um, tradition of, of these questions in terms of what's the role of, of media in terms of, of amplifying violence. And, you know, and then there's a whole school of thought, you know, you can go back to Thatcher and Northern Ireland, where she used those terms of the oxygen of publicity. So don't give protest the oxygen of publicity. A similar argument, you might recall, was used by Claudio Motsuneng a few years ago when um, he said the ACBC was not allowed to cover community protests. And, and often th- these arguments are often used by people that want to quell, uh, not to quell conflict, but, but actually want to suppress dissent. And, and I think that's that's the wrong way to go. Um but the, the, the converse is true in the sense and, and so there's a whole academic history also of media effects and you know to what extent can can media actually um amplify and, and cause further violence. Exactly that's another another classic, you know. Um so I, I think that that is certainly not the, the the way to go. But but at the same time, there is also the danger that one says, "Well, we are just um, mirroring what is going on. We're just the messenger. We're just holding up a mirror to society." And I think um, the points that Heather that you're making around ethics and around um, responsibility um, that is absolutely vital in a situation like this. So there's also a, a whole tradition of peace journalism, for instance, where instead of say reporting on, and, and Heather, I know that while you were the Herald, you did also did this listening, for instance, and, and that that's a very good example of a type of peace journalism that listening to communities and trying to look for solutions rather than just playing up the conflict. And there's, I think what we're seeing here already is that you, there's a danger of reporting this almost as... As a sort of a horse race, you know, who's going to win? You know, the the the, the looters or the police or the um, Zuma or Ramaphosa, and and you know, it's it's like this. Um, and 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 just reporting on that, in, in almost an stenographic fashion, that I do think has the the potential of, um, if not amplifying the violence, um, actually not doing anything to contribute to its de-escalation. I think what, what is needed here is then that sort of ethical um, reflection on how can we make this um, maybe more understandable for people? How can we contextualize this? Because remember, I mean, as as widespread as this is in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, and we are still talking about two provinces in, in a country. We are also talking about... And, and, and to what extent are we seeing people not only um, resorting to vigilantism, but also, you know, people actually standing up and say, well, we're going to protect the shops, we're going to try and help out, we're going to try and, so there's always a choice. And, and I think there's always a choice of, of what do you spotlight. So that argument of we're holding up a mirror, I think is, is, is a very, it's a, is a useless metaphor for me. I, I think one should rather talk about projecting. What are you projecting? So you, you do cho- choose to to focus on certain things and and project certain things and and I think that's where the ethical responsibility comes in, to realise that um, we are not just um, recording and mirroring. We are actually um, contributing to a conversation or to maybe uh, maybe it's, it's long past the conversation. We're contributing to a very heated argument um and you know so 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 what what can the media do um to deescalate this to contextualize this to explain this and and i think this is where there's this 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 knowledge of history of longer histories of of social dynamics of um also of the sort of things that we've been talking about the the the, the longer history of democratization in this country the frustration that's that's um palpable everywhere um, how do we explain that? Um, rather than just looking at this other sort of um, very simplistic conflict that you know you, you follow as if it's a you know a, a dumpster fire. So I think um, f- for me, I think that's where the, the ethical questions comes in, and, and I think Heather is entirely correct by saying that um, the, the, the the press code, the press council, the, the broadcasting complaints commission, these. Um, and 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 also the, the various organizations working to counter disinformation. These are vitally important at this point um, because this is the, really where journalism and um, and really all of us that are involved with it as media users and people that share things on WhatsApp and and on Facebook, Twitter, and so on, where we we get to reflect on what we're doing. Um, and and if we don't have that, I think then then the media is, is going to do more harm than good. So it's, it's really a vital aspect. And I share your concern, Heather, that um, you know, some parts of the media have just really decided they're not going to do that. Um, and that's that's really problematic. At the same time, I think another thing about around journalism that we have to recognize is that it has been hollowed out. Um the the the, the capabilities of the media have been vastly. Um, eroded over the, the past number of years as a result of many factors and economic factors that have been exacerbated, also now by the pandemic. And we saw the the Sanef report that came out uh, was that a few months ago that that pointed to the the uh, some of these problems that are still um, present in, in newsrooms. So I think again here when we talk about the media's role, uh, there's also the this is also a chance to think about how do we strengthen the media's capabilities to contribute to this sort of um, peace building and peace journalism, rather than uh, just the sort of stenography of violence.
0: How well are journalists being prepared to be able to bring real perspective to the very complex kind of challenges we face as a society, um, complex interactions that produce, you know, the events that, that capture our attention, you know uh, you know beyond just the business model <laughs> of, of media and how it's changed, just in terms of how journalists are prepared, have there been any fundamental changes or shortcomings in that?
1: you know the biggest problem um has been um, the for for me in in newsrooms and in institutions that I've worked for like, uh, for example uh, has been. The closing down of 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 training in newsrooms due to i mean you know economic factors um, you know as, as 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 the institutions started making less profits and so and 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 media started shrinking and you know more more people were um um you know were, were, were let go um one of the first things to go were, I mean, there used to be cadet training and there used to be, you know, like uh, internal schools where where young journalists would come in, they'd say, come from the universities and then they'd, and, and then they'd work and be mentored by all the journalists. And now, I mean, also um, people have to multitask so much, you know, like, um, they've, got to, they've got to use their cell phones to take photographs, they've got to record, they've got to tweet, they've got to write their stories, they've got to interview. Um, I think that's that's um, that burden, that, that 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 overburdening of the journalist as an in, individual, and and that and that sort of that that taking away of that mentorship role of older and younger, because also newsrooms have become. Rather juniorized i uh, tell is like an anomaly because actually there are more people over sixty than, than under thirty which is um, which I think it, it it does show in terms of analysis etc and and, and 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 understanding of history and context and background um, but a lot of a lot of newsrooms have been juniorized um, because the older journalists were more expensive. Um, Yeah. So, so, so so this is, this, this, this is the challenge that, that, that newsrooms face. And in, in terms of, and then the universities, um, I've too recently got, I mean, did, did my, my MA at, at Rhodes. I find the universities are trying, they are actually trying to, um, you no, know, when I did my MO, the roads must fall and fees must fall were happening, and um, yeah, my the, the the lectures and academics there really did try, and I found we used a lot of um, oh, well, we used a lot of Herman's work uh, papers uh, and, and, and 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 academics and media researchers from all over, from all around the country. Um, I I think they the academics are actually in a pretty good job of 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 analyzing um the role of media and the transformation and the and 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 and, and the use of digital media i th- i mean honestly and i'm just, and i'm saying from the perspective of someone who was a master student um i was amazed having come out of the industry at the amount of, amaz- of work that there's that, that there's been done in in terms of of reflecting on the role of journalists journalism digital media the whole digital transformation um, so, so yes, um, when I, as a, as a student, I felt that the universities did, pre- to, uh, uh, were preparing people. I'm not, I and mean, that was at a master's level. Um, and, 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 but what I do think needs to happen is that there needs to be a better relationship between people working in the industry and the academy. Um, when I was at the Herald. I had quite a good relationship with Rhodes and, we, and I would speak to students. And I think that was that was fantastic, because um, as like my colleague Saboon Galwa, who was the editor of the dispatch at the time, we'd be called in and we'd talk, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd engage with students. I think that's important. Um, and jour- our journalists would also go and talk. So, so having that, um, you know, bringing in the practical experience um, and, and engaging with, uh, but, 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 but engagements between students in the academy, lectures in the academy and working Working journalists and editors is, I think it's very important um otherwise students come i mean and yeah with a whole lot of theoretical knowledge, which should not say which is important, but not understanding the the pressures and the context of actually working in the in in the field and and, and understanding the, the 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 multifaceted roles that journalists journalists play you know it's we're not just watchdogs uh, like Herman said we we do you know we, we, we do sometimes um do listening journalism you know trying to have solutions journalism and and just to get exposed to those different kinds and forms of journalism there's i mean, I mean there's the whole school of pleasure journalism it's not just you know it's not just um um naming and shaming and exposing and then moving on to the next naming and shaming and exposing there's there's there's, a, there's, there's there are many different roles that we play and so, yeah, I, I do think there needs to be uh, – we need to solidify the relationship between the academy and, and working journalists, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, if I can come in, I think it's, it's a longstanding <laughs> debate, of course, between acad- academic uh, journalism or journalism studies and, and practitioners. And, you know, I, I, from from an academic point of view, we often think that, you know, we're asked to, to view the practice as normative. In other words, we have to prepare – People to go into practice, whereas we would also like the reverse to be true in a way to say that journalists should also, you know, um, pay more attention to what research is being done. And, and, you know, um, that's why it's always great to have journalists like Heather and others coming back and doing their MAs and and, and telling us also what the reality is out there and and, and vice versa. But I think what is is undoubtedly true, and that is that the, the technology has sped up things so much that the pressures are immense. Um, and I think the this is both true of, of what I can see from practice, but also f- certainly from, from the educational point of view is that there's often the, the demand then also to say that get the technology right first. I mean, you have to um, be able to do podcasts, video casts, clips, um, do all of that technology stuff. And there's almost that fetishization of of delivery of beautiful media products, right? Often people also say we're producing content. I mean, they're not even saying being journalism, we're producing content. Whereas um, I think that language betrays something of a sort of mindset of, um, you know, it's a product that is important, not the process. Whereas I think the, the process uh, we have to claw back a bit and say, the process has to be maybe sometimes slowed down a little bit. And, and again, we see this now in this context where there's so much happening so fast. Um, and it's all over social media, it's all over television, it's on our WhatsApps and, and everything seems to be happening so fast that, um, and, and journalists have this instinct and I think it's, it's mostly important as well to try and stay on top of what is happening. But I think there is certainly also a parallel demand and that is to say, well, let's just pause a little bit and think about what is happening. And, and as things are unfolding, try and also make sense of them. And, and I think that's where there's, then there's also interestingly a, a, um, a, another movement. You know, we've talked about, talked about solutions journalism and peace journalism. But there's also a movement saying about slow journalism, whereas which is counterintuitive, right? Because journalism is that, that first draft of history, it's history in a hurry, it's always that, that fast paced. But saying that, you know, the role, and and this is to come back to, Heather, what you've said right at the beginning about journalists as curators, um, to say that, you know, all of that fast-moving stuff is already out there. You can't really hope to keep up with it. What you can do as a journalist is to try and make sense of it and contextualize it and and add meaning to it and and let people, you know, think about it maybe a bit more slowly. So I think there's these, these, I don't don't want to say they're, they're competing imperatives. I would rather say they're parallel imperatives of, of reporting, doing it on on technology, doing it fast, bringing the news out there in all these various formats that you require to do, but at the same time, also doing the slow work of meaning making, of explaining, of contextualization, um, and, and I think that's where I mean, if we come back to education, where certainly in, in the department where I am, you know, that's the way that we think about what we're doing is not only, and maybe not even as much as some other places are doing the technology and the practical stuff saying what we are also wanting journalists or would be journalists to develop is that sense of imagination and also a sense of moral imagination. So, um, and and Kamaran, you mentioned Martha Nussbaum earlier. Um, she wrote a beautiful little book on the humanities. It's called Not For Profit. Um, in that book, she talks about the, the importance of humanities because what she says, if you're reading a novel, if you're seeing a play, um, those sort of things at the university develops a moral imagination. You try and imagine yourself in the position of somebody else. So, if you see somebody looting in a in a mall, right, um, the first instinct maybe is to condemn, but um, you can also try and imagine what that person might be thinking, or what that might, that person's conditions, life conditions, might be, and that might lead to a different. I'm not saying that mean, means that you have to justify everything but it might just lead to a richer understanding of what is going on here. Um, And and so I think the sort of education of journalism for me is that education of a sort of imagination of a moral imagination um, and trying to understand things within a broader context. And that's often also a historical context. So um, Heather, you mentioned generalization of journalists. Um, How many journalists in newsrooms today can recall, you know, those days that Kamaran referred to the, the IFP and the and the, the, what's happened in, in during the states of emergency. I mean, do they even know what the states of emergency were? And, and so when you see now people calling for a state of emergency, um, do they understand the implications of this? Do they understand the historical ramifications of what it means to send troops into suburbs and townships? So um, I think that is also important: is that that sense of history and this, that that long, um, the knowledge of the long context, um, and all of that that has to I think come into play when you when you're a, um, journalism or media educator. But it, I, I would like to see more of that also happening in in practice, um, where that sort of um, conversations are happening in terms of how do we understand this current present moment, this hurried history. In in the context of a much longer um, social history and political history.
1: So um, one of my colleagues, Marianne Tam, one of the one, one of the grey hairs in the sixties, um, t- two weeks ago, two three weeks ago, set up what we call a political cafe, politics cafe, um, every Monday at ten o'clock, um, because she identified that we would you know everyone's talking in circles and, we, and we're all working you know there's no newsroom because we're all working remotely. And so, where 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 younger members of our of our staff can engage with with, with all the, and and talk about what's actually happening in our country, um and so everyone can have a view. On it. I mean that's I mean it's just an hour. It's an hour from ten to eleven on a Monday, and people do it. it's, it's it's on Google Meets. but that is a way of you know of, of, that, of that that intergenerational you know sharing of history and understanding and questioning. You know, it's like uh. Um, and I, I yeah, that for me that, that, that's a pretty positive move to actually just just get that that deeper understanding of of what are we doing? It's not just getting the story. It's like, you know, what's you know, how did we get to where we are now in terms of this context that we're living in?
0: Please join us in part two of this podcast as we continue our discussion with Heather and Herman.